1 John. Today we get to see the big picture of 1 John. You might wonder, why is it called 1 John? Well, you need to understand something about the human author whom the Holy Spirit used to start with. Of course, we're talking about the Apostle John. Although the letter itself doesn't identify the human author, uh, but we do know based on the earliest testimony from the first century church and, and beyond that it was, it was always ascribed to the Apostle John. And uh, by the Apostle John, I mean the one who is a part of that inner circle. This was somebody who was included in that, that top three of the disciples. Of course, I'm referring to Peter, James, and John. And one of the reasons we know it's John is because of internal evidence, which closely related to the, to the book of John. Uh, we know John, uh, the, the author here, mentions in the first few verses that uh, he was closely associated with Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look in the first few verses, it says, we, we heard him, we've seen him with our eyes, we've looked upon Jesus, we we, including himself, we've even touched Jesus with our hands. So this is somebody who had a very close relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't know exactly when this was written. Most likely it was the latter part of the first century. Uh, John was the, the only one out of all the Jesus' disciples that wasn't martyred for his faith. And so he was, he was an old man at this time, which is, by the way, you, you ever notice John calls the readers little children? <laughs> it kind of gives you a clue. He's an old man. He's, he's talking to his readers as if they are kind of they, like his spiritual children, if you will. And what's the purpose for the, the writing of this particular letter? Well, you need to understand, John lived in, in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor. I put a little map up on the screen here for you. Uh, Eph or, sorry, Ephesus is part of, which is modern-day Turkey. Asia Minor is part of modern-day Turkey. And so he's carrying out this extensive evangelistic program even into his later years. He's overseeing many of the churches in that area. You'll, you'll notice some of them there, the, all those seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, you'll see there. Uh, Ephesus was one of those and so he's overseeing these churches. He's conducting an, an extensive writing ministry, even up to the end of his life. And he was very concerned about false teachers that were promoting new ideas that eventually became known as Gnosticism. Uh, you'll, Gnosticism, within that, you'll, you'll see the, the Greek word we get knowledge from. Gnosticism supported this belief that matter was inherently evil and the spirit was good. And so as a result of that presupposition or that belief, the false teachers ended up denying Christ's humanity uh, because, well, they, supposedly they said they had a good reason for that. They wanted to preserve Jesus from evil, right? So you don't, wanna, you don't want Jesus to be human and God because, you know, the humanity, that's evil. Matter is evil. So we've we, we got to preserve Jesus from evil was their thinking. Well, they also claimed elevated knowledge, a higher truth that was known only to, to, to supposedly these people on the inside, these people who, had this, who knew these deep things, and only special people had this mystical knowledge that was 
to them even higher than the Scripture. And so instead of divine revelation, standing as judge over man's ideas, what they ended up doing is man's ideas ended up standing in judgment upon God's divine revelation. I hope you can see a problem with that. And so since the the heresy was something extremely dangerous, and the time period they were living in was crucial for the church, John ends up sending this letter we call, the Bible calls 1 John, uh, that was sent to the, the churches in his sphere of influence, was, which was here in Asia Minor. Hello. We're looking at 1 John. There's a Bible back there for you if you need one. And so John sends his letter out uh, to his sphere of influence, and his, his goal, if you will, his purpose is to stem the spreading plague of false doctrine that was infesting the early church. Something in particular John cares about was, was a very important question. And, and here's the question John's going to answer. What is true spirituality? What is true spirituality? Is it what the Gnostics believed, or is it something else? Well, John wants you to know something. As I said earlier, the word know is the key word in the book of 1 John. He says it many, many times. Don't ask me how many. There's your homework for this week. You go search 1 John. See how many times John uses the word know. And so he's going to answer the question, what is true spirituality? And according to John, here's basically my theme for today. And from this theme comes my main points. True spirituality is a proper belief in Jesus that produces obedience to his commands. And obedience issues in love for God and fellow believers. Let me repeat that, because that's the theme, and then from that, all the three main points we see in 1 John. So according to John, true spirituality is a proper belief in Jesus that produces obedience to his commands, and then obedience issues in love for God and fellow believers. So that's the big picture of 1 John. And so there's some other key words, of course, other important words you'll see in 1 John. And and I'll mention them. You need to understand these. Because when faith, obedience, and love operate in unity, they have a result. And the result is happiness, holiness, and assurance. You ever wanted to have that assurance? it's, It's hard to have assurance these days. But John tells us how we can have assurance of salvation. He tells us how you can know for sure that when you die... You'll be absent from your body, and you're going to be present with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. You can know that. And he says how you can know that. And so we're going to answer this question today, what is a real Christian? What is a real Christian? Well, John's goal in this letter here is he's going to inform you. He wants you to know something. He's going to tell you, it's not this, it's this. John is one of these black and white guys. He, he's not beating around the bush at all. He's not, he's not leaving this at a mystery at all. John just says it as it is. Light, darkness, children of God, children of the devil. I mean, over and over again, it's that stark contrast. And if you like people who are blunt, who are frank, then you're going to like John. <laughs> so there's three tests that John gives to answer this question of what is a 
real Christian. He's going to inform us, hey, do we have a hold of the real thing? All right, so here's the three tests. They're going to be doctrinal, moral, and love. So the doctrine test, the moral test, and the love test. You see all three of those in the book of John here, or 1 John. So let's take a look at the first one, the doctrinal test. Now there's a lot of doctrine or biblical teaching that John could have addressed, but he addresses this one thing. He's asking the question, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Now in that phrase, that Jesus is the Son of God, that's addressing Jesus' two natures. See, Jesus is God and he's man. He's both natures in one person forever. And John says, this is what you must believe. And he, John clearly, he says, clearly, you must believe Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and he's come in the flesh. Now, next month, we're going to celebrate Christmas, aren't we? The uh, majority of the world celebrates Christmas in December, and I hope they don't lose sight of the real reason for the season. It's all about Christ. His word, his name is even... In the word Christmas, it's Christmas. And so, as as Christians, I hope you don't lose sight of that. What's it all about? We celebrate God becoming man. And John was addressing a lie that was circulating in the church. Apparently, some people were teaching God never took on human flesh. They said human flesh is sinful, it's evil. Ooh, that's bad. So God may have appeared as a human in Jesus, but he didn't really take on human flesh. Well, that was one of the beliefs circulating uh, during that time. So basically, the false teachers were separating the human Jesus and the divine Christ. Well, (laughs) the early church fathers addressed that quite well. If you want to read, well, we read from the Baptist Confession of Faith earlier. They did a good job addressing that heresy And so in that false teaching, you might ask, well, hey, is this just some academic matter? Uh, Is this something that should just be left in the classrooms? You know, let let the guys who are becoming doctors of theology address that. But for the rest of us, you know, this is just an academic matter, and it doesn't really matter to us. Is that the case? Well, I can assure you, not at all. It's not something that should be left in the classroom, and it's not just an academic matter. You need to understand this. Theology matters. It affects your life. Here's how it affects you, okay? And we'll look at the scriptures here in a moment. But understand this, my friend, that without a fully human and fully divine mediator, you have no hope. You can't have an atoning sacrifice for your sin without God becoming a man. So John is responding with certainty here, and he he says Jesus had a real human body. Now, how did John know that? Well, if you know anything about the Apostle John, you, you know he says so here, I saw Jesus, I heard Jesus, I even touched the Lord Jesus. Look what he says in chapter 1, verse 1. 1 John 1, 1. That which we was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
the life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's just stop there for a moment. We're going to just look at portions of 1 John today. So I hope you can see there, John is someone who experienced Jesus. He saw Him, he heard Him, he even touched Him. Next, John's going to tell us in chapter 4, turn over there, tells us in chapter 4 that true and false spirits can be recognized. In other words, how do you know what's true and what is false? How do you know what's good, what's bad? What is the truth and what is a lie? John tells us the true and false spirits can be recognized by whether they recognize these things. Look what he says, chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. How do you know? Look what John says. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Pretty clear, isn't it? John John says, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Well, not only is Jesus fully human, the, the Bible says he's also fully God. Jesus didn't lose his divinity when he was born as a man. And those who are the children of God are going to acknowledge this glorious truth that Jesus is the God-man. Look what John says in chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And then John writes to these young Christians to give them confidence. He wants Christians to have assurance. And it's hard to believe something confidently when you have a bunch of false teachers who are going around teaching the exact opposite thing, uh, particularly on matters as fundamental as this, of who is Jesus? What is the nature of Jesus? And so John realized that, of course, and he's, he's desiring to clear up this whole mess. And so look what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now look at verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
You ever wanted to know if you're a Christian? You ever wanted to know if your children are, are Christians? Or if your mother or father is a Christian? Or anybody else? You or someone else? You want to know for sure they're a Christian? This is the first test that John gives. It's a doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? John says you must believe the right doctrine about who Jesus is. You you can't just believe in your own mind and make up, this is my Jesus. right? You, You can't make a Jesus of your own thinking. It has to be the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is fully God and fully man. My friend, please understand, your salvation depends on the sacrifice of the body of Jesus. You have to understand, he's he's utterly unique. He is the God-man. There's nobody else like him. And so if you take away Jesus' physical body, guess what? There's no sacrifice. Because you can't kill God. God can't die. That's why Jesus had to take on human form. And so only human sacrifice can sacrificially stand in the place of another human being. And, And so payment for sin could not have been made if Jesus wasn't really a man. Well, on the other hand, if you take away the fact that Jesus is God, if you say that Jesus isn't God, then his sacrifice loses its infinite worth and its ability to exhaust God's infinite wrath. Okay? So they have to be both. Jesus had to be God and man. Only the infinite God himself could act as the atoning sacrifice for mankind's sin. Nobody else could do that for you. And so, my friend, if you don't understand who Jesus is, the Bible says you're not a Christian. I didn't say that. The Bible does. And so, you have to know God took on flesh. He lived the perfect life, died the death that sinners deserve, and then he rose again, as he said he would, Conquering sin and death. So again, I ask you the doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? That's the most important question that you could ever ask. Do you believe that? Do you know who Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Hopefully it matches up with what he has revealed himself to be in Holy Scripture. All right, that's the doctrinal test. You need to know who Jesus is. Let's look at the second test. It's the moral test. The Bible here asks this question, do you obey God's commands? Do you obey God's commands? Now, none of us completely keep all of Jesus' commands. That's impossible because we're sinners. But uh, John says, is it your habitual practice? None of us are perfect, but do you do you habitually try at least okay so if you if you claim to know jesus but you don't obey him john says your words are meaningless they're false true belief in jesus is going to show itself in right living it's going to show itself in your righteousness in other words what you do reveals what you are john says so in chapter two look at chapter two verse three Look at chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now the church in the first century had a problem. Here's the problem John's addressing. People were living in ways that were, uh, were wrong, they, thinking they were beyond good and evil. And John's pointing us to the problem here. It, it, particularly, he just nails the head. The, he, he hits the nail right on the head here in chapter 2, verse 15. Here's, look what he says, chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. By the way, the, the world is not the, the earth, you know, Mother Earth, so to speak. It's this world system that we live in. So John's saying, don't fall in love with the world system that we live in, which includes its beliefs and philosophies and so forth. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, what is that? Well, John tells you here, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, these people claim to love God. Uh, Otherwise, they wouldn't be going to church. These people were in the churches that John was writing to. So they claimed to love God, but the problem was they also claimed to love the world. And so John's saying, well, that's actually impossible. You can't love God and the world. You only have one master, is the way Jesus put it. Two loves like this end up pulling you apart, pulls you in two ways, and in the process rips you apart. Now look what John says in chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. We'll just read a few verses here. And notice John calls his readers little children. It doesn't mean they were infants or or even toddlers. Just, this is his affectionate way of talking to his fellow believers. In verse 7, he calls them little children. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So it's very simple, is it not? If you're a child of God, then you live like your father. You ever heard that phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? Right? What does that mean? It means, it means our children uh, often look and, and behave and, and, and act like us. It should be, we should be imitating and, and acting like our heavenly father. If you're a child of God, you're going to live like God. If you're a child of the devil... You're going to live like the devil. That's what John's saying. 
Now, no Christian perfectly lives like God. None of us are perfect. But Christians are going to make mistakes. We are going to sin. The good news is we have Jesus. And we can thank God for chapter 2, verse 1. I love this verse. Look what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. (laughs) So my friends, ask yourself this moral test. Do I obey God's commands? Do I obey God's commands? Well, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For us today, this means that even the most orthodox person in the world is not a Christian. And by orthodox, I hope you mean, I hope you understand. I mean the, the most doctrinally correct person in the world who, who, who's got all the T's, you know, crossed, the I's dotted. They, they know their doctrine backwards, forwards. They know it so well they could quote the entire confession of faith and could quote all the scripture, you know, that kind of a person, right? John's saying even the most orthodox person in the world is not a Christian if his or her right thinking is not coupled with right living, right? If they're not living what the doctrine says, then John says they're not a Christian. And I want to use a story to kind of illustrate this point, and this story is not original with me. I've kind of adapted this from Charles Swindoll's book entitled Improving Your Serve. Here's how the story goes. Again, it's been adapted from his book. Suppose Bob starts a business, and Bob puts me in charge of his business. And then Bob travels off to Europe. He goes off to Europe for some, some business deals, and he leaves me with very careful instructions of how to operate his business. While he's away, Bob sends me a few more letters with further instructions about what needs to be done in the office. And then suppose Bob returns several weeks later and he finds the office in ruins. Suppose Bob comes in, first thing he sees is his receptionist sitting listening to the radio while she's ignoring the telephone that keeps on ringing. And everybody else is in the office playing chess or cards instead of doing work. There's rubbish all over the floor. Bob's email box is filled with angry notes from customers who are very angry at the bad service they've received and are threatening to dump him. So Bob walks up to me and he says, Hey, what happened while I was away? (laughs) Didn't you get my letters? And then I just kind of smile at Bob and say, Oh yeah, I got your letters. Uh, In fact... I loved reading your letters, Bob. They were great. In fact, they were so good, I photocopied your letters, and I handed them out to everybody in the office. 
And, and you know what? Everybody in the office loved your letters too, Bob. They loved them so much. In fact, we had studies on your letters, Bob. In fact, they were so good, some of us decided to go to Warehouse Stationery and get them framed. See, they're on the wall. We even put your letters on the wall. They were that good, Bob. Some of us have even begun memorizing parts of your letters. Well, you might imagine what Bob White might say at that point. Imagine to put yourself in his shoes. What would you do if it was your business? <laughs> and you had that kind of response after seeing the mess and the ruin. Well, um, I imagine Bob might say, Hey, why didn't you do what the letters told you to do? I mean, how can you say that you love my letters, but then you ignore what the letters say? Well, I hope you get the point. <laughs> and the point is this, that words alone are cheap, aren't they? Words alone, without the actions, are empty. They're empty. You see, a disciple of Jesus Christ who want, is one who follows Jesus Christ. And so the question is, are you following Jesus Christ? Are you obeying His commands? If you're not following Christ, then John says you're not a disciple. You're following someone or something else, but it's not Jesus. Well, let's move on to the third and final test that John gives. It's the love test. Do you love God's people? And by God's people, of course, we mean Christians. These are people who are following Jesus Christ. So let's just look at a, uh, a couple different passages here. Let's, let's start in chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother, and by that, we, John means your Christian brother, your Christian sister. Uh, it's not your blood brother here, okay? You understand that? He's talking about Christians, people of God. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now look at chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Chapter 4, verse 7. Please look at chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now drop down to verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 19. 
We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We'll stop there. I hope you get the point. John over and over saying the same thing. Do you love Christians? Do you love one another? And so if you're a Christian, this is John's message to you. You must love. It's not an option. Do you love your fellow Christian as God loves you? That's a pretty high standard, is it not? And so my friends, we need the active love here that encourages church members to give themselves away for one another. We need to learn to love people. And we need to learn to love people who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't, who don't act like us. The problem is, there's this phrase I learned a long time ago, that birds of a feather flock together. You ever heard that? Birds of a feather flock together. What You say, well, what's the point? <laughs> the, the, the point is, in relation to people, we, we like to kind of have cliques. We like to kind of hang out and be with people who are just like us. And we feel uncomfortable with people who are older than us or younger than us, people who are a different social standing than us, or people who are of a different ethnicity, people who are maybe from a different country. We want to hang, you know, hang out with people of our own like kind. Well, God's saying that's not acceptable. And so the we we tend to form friendships with people who are just like us, but the most honest test of Christian love is whether we love those with whom we disagree with. Do we love people who are difficult, people who are different from us? Yeah, I know that's not easy, but that's what God calls us to do. And if we simply love those who are agreeing with us, or uh, well, we have no evidence of Christian love then. Christian love looks like Christ's love. You can thank God that Christ didn't just love Israelites or the Jews, people that were just like him. He loved all peoples of the earth. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question then, whom did Christ love and lay his life down for? Well, the Bible says he did that for sinners. <laughs> he wasn't a sinner, but he did it for sinners. And so people who were in rebellion against him, people who didn't like him, he loved them anyway. And so it's at the very point of rebellion that he laid his life down for us. That's what John says. That is what Christian love is. So I ask, do you love the people of God? Now, please stay with me here. I, I'm, I'm not asking you if you somehow feel some... Uh, you know, emotion of love. I'm not asking, do you feel well disposed towards someone? But do you actually and actively love someone? See, your, your actions show if you love somebody. Do you use your hands for that person? You know, maybe, they, they, maybe they need help moving the belongings in their house if they shift house. Or maybe they need some digging done in their garden. Or maybe they... Who knows? Maybe you can do something. You have an ability that they don't. Are you using your hands to serve other Christians? 
Are you using your money to serve other Christians? If somebody loses a job, for example, it's been helpful to us in the past. We found groceries on our doorstep. I don't know who those people were, but these fellow Christians of mine were using God's money to serve us. Are you using your tongue to show love to other Christians? And it might be even your pen. Maybe you can't use your tongue. Maybe you can use your pen or you can use a computer to type a message to someone to show love. Well, if not, perhaps you've not understood God's love for you. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we don't show love to other people because we've never understood God's love for us. Could be. So what do you do? What's the solution? Well, first of all, you have to look to Christ. You need to understand God's love for you. Consider His love for you. And if you don't understand that, John informs us. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the wrath absorber, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, here's our theme, my friends, coming from those three points. A proper belief in Jesus produces obedience to His commands. And obedience then issues in love for God and fellow believers. That's what John is telling us. So I want to conclude by looking at the very last verse in John. And, and I don't know about you, if you, have you ever noticed the last verse in John? It is, it's a unique book. It, it doesn't end with a benediction. It doesn't end with a prayer. John just hits you between the eyes. It's the knockout punch. It's the last thing John gives you. Unlike the Pauline epistles, he doesn't pray for God's grace and peace. <laughs> Look what he says in the very last verse. It's a very interesting short verse. He just says, keep yourselves from idols. That's it. That's it. He doesn't even say amen. Keep yourselves from idols. That's his last words. And I was looking at that thinking, why did John do that? That's kind of uh, very abrupt. You know, normally when you write a letter, you, you at least say, you know, sincerely and write your name. Or, you know, I like to sign off my letters, uh, you know, saying something about grace and peace to you or you know, something, you know, like that. But John doesn't do that. So I got to ask the question, why does he introduce idolatry at this point? Now, here's the point. I think here's the point. John wants you to keep yourself from a false and distorted Jesus. Do you realize that's what idolatry is? Idolatry, or idols, is a false and distorted Jesus. 
And there are millions and billions of people in our world who have a false and distorted view of Jesus. That is what idolatry is. It's, idolatry is when you, you make something that's different from the real one true God. And so you, you might ask, well, how do I know if I have a false and distorted Jesus? How do I know if I am keeping myself from idols? Well, that happens in three ways, and that's all coming from the text here. The first way is you might have the wrong doctrine. If you have the wrong doctrine, guess what? You have an idol. You are not keeping yourselves from idols. You, you might think of Christ as some impersonal force. You might think that Jesus was just some great human teacher. A lot of people think that about Jesus. They, they think Je- some think Jesus was a great prophet, but he wasn't God. That is a false Jesus. That's idolatry. And if you think he's just some impersonal force and he wasn't like a real person, that is wrong doctrine. Because the Bible says, John says, God became human. So keep yourselves from the imposters. They're just idols to suit your desires. Now, how do I know if I have a false Jesus? The second thing coming from our text here is you might think God is somehow unconcerned about your sin. How many people in our world think God doesn't care about their sin? So I can just do whatever I want. How many people think that way? A lot of people, right? Well, my friend, Jesus Christ cares so much about sin, he died for sin. He came to earth and died for sin. That tells you that God cares about sin. He's deeply concerned for how we live, and so... If you're worshiping a God who is apathetic to sin, you're not worshiping the true God then. If you're worshiping as some idol of your own making, that is idolatry. How do I know if I have a false and distorted Jesus? The third way you can know this, third way you can understand if you're keeping yourself from idols is you might think God is unconcerned with love. Do you? Do you think God is unconcerned with love? You may think that, hey, I can get my doctrine right. I can believe biblical teaching. Uh, hey, I've, you know, I've never murdered anybody. Some people think that's, that's good, of course. Uh, I've never committed adultery. I've never done anything grossly immoral. I go to church. That's enough, right? That's what some people think. Hey, you know, I've, I've had people tell me, hey, I never robbed a bank. I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody. I'm a good person. I believe in Jesus. I've even gone to church before. That's enough, isn't it? Well, John says, no. Jesus Christ died for our sins because of his love for us. He leads his children to love one another in the exact same way that he loves us. And so if you miss that, my friend then you're, you're missing the real God. And if you miss the real God, guess what? You're not keeping yourselves from idols. You're worshiping a false God, which is idolatry. Well, the Bible says, again, look at the last verse of 1 John. He says, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. So if you keep yourselves from those idols, you know what's going to happen? You're going you're to have joy. 
that, that John talked about in chapter 1. You're going to have assurance of salvation. You're going to have great confidence. You're going to know these glorious truths that John's been talking about. You know, there's, there's been times in my life where even though I was a believer, I doubted my salvation because, because I wasn't keeping myself from idols. I wasn't. I was worshiping a false god, a god of my own making. I, I was sinning against God. And because of that, I doubted. So th- this is very important. Keep yourselves from idols. And when you do that, you can then know that you've gotten a hold of the real thing. Then you can know what true spirituality is. You can know that you are a real Christian. May God help you to know the truth. Let's pray.